If you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, as uh, the choir finds their seat and you find your place in God's Word. Uh, ju- just a couple of things. Uh, one, I-, I would commend that very work uh, that Pastor John had us read from, the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, it-, it is profound and uh, well worth the investment, which is fairly minimal uh, in terms of what it would cost for you to purchase. Uh, it is of benefit not only to your soul, but I, I've also found uh, it, this is far less significant, but still, I think, helpful. I, I think it's good in this day and age that we are reminded of the thoughts, the theology, the spirituality that undergirds the foundation of our very nation. When we're talking about the prayers of Puritans, we're talking about some of them who well before there was ever a father founding anything on this land, that they were deeply rooted in these things and I would contend uh, are critically important uh, for understanding our very nation. So, uh, so it does provide, I think, uh, helpful guidance as, uh, as you were, were to... to read, be discipled uh, in your own spiritual growth. So I would commend that to you. Also just want to point out once again, though it often looks like John and I must meticulously be arranging things, uh, we do talk about things, but I had decided to preach from Isaiah 53 um, before I knew we were singing Man of Sorrows. And so it, it is the text f- from which that phrase is drawn uh, and found this to be a, a helpful uh, scripture as we think about preparing ourselves for the Lord's Supper. So Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1, and, and we, we will just be reading verses 1 through 6, and really just focusing our attention then in verses 4, 5, and 6 in just a moment. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There are few holidays that seem as up for grabs, as it were, in terms of origin and historical development, as Valentine's Day. You do know tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It is, it is an interesting holiday, and like, I guess, just about every other one, it's been commercialized, modernized, and largely robbed of what could be some very rich and profound biblical and theological 
themes. Valentine's Day, in some form or fashion, really is quite ancient. Uh, but as I said, we, the, the beginnings of it, its origin, what, why do we have this day and who is St. Valentine? Well, already we've got a tricky situation because there are three men in the history of the church. And we say history of the church, we're talking pre-Christianization of the Roman Empire period. We're talking right after the time of the New Testament, uh, 200s, 300s. There, there, are, there are three men who bear this name. Well, we're not sure which one actually should be the guy who gets the credit. All of them, though, named Valentine or Valentinus, uh, depending on, on your reading there. Here's one thing, though, we do know about all three of them. All three of them were martyred for the faith. In other words, all three of these men died at the hands of persecutors because of their commitment to Christ and to His Word. One of them, one possible option, and this is, a, this is a rather romantic notion as soon as you hear the story, perhaps you are aware of it, Emperor Claudius II passed a law requiring all soldiers to remain single. He thought single soldiers fought better. They didn't have the concerns of family ties, connections, those kinds of things to be more devoted to the army, but people being people and men falling in love. They wanted to get married, and so Valentine would engage in secret marriages for them. It was uncovered, and he was beheaded. See, he, he didn't believe that there was anything in Scripture that forbade it. He didn't find any evidence in the Word of God that would suggest that you could make this kind of a law and, in fact, believe that, that, that marriage was good and righteous and a profound reflection of Christ's love for His church. And so, he performed marriages when he shouldn't have, died for it. Uh, another one was jailed, again, because of his faith and was awaiting death. And as the story goes, again, keep, keep that in mind, right, as the story goes. He fell in love with his jailer's daughter. And just before his death, sent her a letter in which he began from your Valentine. We like that one, don't we? I mean, so I can see the smile on some of your faces, especially the ladies. Yes, we like that's. We're going to pick that one. All right, that's the one that really sounds most romantic. And again, we we also know that there are there are elements of Valentines that can also be tracked to to, to Roman pagan celebrations related to a fertility god and agriculture. But it is interesting to me that at least a part of this day that has now become again commercialized and and often. And, and hopefully you and I don't, wouldn't recognize love in these terms, but, but it is a day that our culture really celebrates kind of its misguided and often shallow forms of love, often really sinful and depraved forms of it for that matter. So it's fascinating to me that though it has become what it is today, that in fact, some element of Valentine's Day is rooted in what is the ultimate earthly example of love, and that is giving of oneself for the sake of Christ and for the sake of His church. And so that's the image we're going with today. Because really that is the example that 
Christ himself set. It was on the night that he was betrayed. He gathered with his disciples for what would be their last observance of the Passover meal. And it's in the midst of this Passover meal that we have this transition, this transition away from the sign that was the Old Testament Passover meal to now the fulfillment of it that would be Christ crucified. So now God's people gather, not not to remember an exodus from Egypt, but we gather to remember through a body that was broken and through blood that was shed, we we gather to remember an exodus out of sin, certain death, eternal separation from God. In fact, it was on this night that that in the midst of this, which was kind of a tense time, if you go and read all of it in the text, you find it's in some cases it's kind of odd. There, There are some elements that the the men for sure react to what Jesus is doing. It, I can only imagine it had some tension in it. But it's in the midst of this that Jesus teaches on love and in fact tells them important truth. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and tells them to love one another as I have loved you. But then he makes this statement, one that we're so familiar with, in, in the midst of talking about the importance of loving him, loving others, he says, no greater love has a man than this than he would lay down his life for his friends. Again, we we have Jesus himself teaching what what is this most fundamental and profound and rich and deep expression of genuine biblical love. The men did not understand it in spite of the fact Jesus had said on more than one occasion, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He laid it out pretty clearly on a number of occasions, but they still don't really get it. That when Jesus makes statements like this, he's really foreshadowing what's going to be his own example here. And it's this example that we remember this morning. So this morning, I want to take just a few minutes because really what what we want to have happen is our focus is given to the elements of the Lord's Supper. But I I do want to think then with a little more depth about the nature of this love. To what degree has he shown us love in his death? As as we gather around the table and we take of the elements together and we think of, again, a body that was broken and blood that was shed, what does this say then about the love of Christ for us. Well, I, I want to highlight too, there aren't notes. I, I mean, there could be a blank spot where you could fill in notes, all right, but there's not going to be anything behind me. Uh, there's not going to be any blanks to fill in for, for this morning. Just really a, more of a devotional thought on these verses. And so let me make that emphatic. Do you know how long it would take me to thoroughly exegete Isaiah 53? <laughs> Approximately 53 years, all right? Maybe not quite that long. So just know I'm not doing this rich and profound and beautiful text all of all justice that it deserves, nor will I even give the background the justice it deserves, but just so you know, Isaiah 53 comes in the midst, this titled often Suffering Servant, the Song of the Suffering Servant. This chapter comes in the midst of a larger part of Isaiah where the prophet is encouraging God's people after spending some significant amount of time, as prophets do, warning about 
judgment to come. And he transitions then to promising them a glorious salvation to come. And, and perhaps the high water mark then of this section is in fact this chapter where, where we have Isaiah laying out for us very clearly what is going to be the ministry of Christ, Jesus, as, as he draws the people's attention not to a Messiah, but the Messiah. And we understand this then through the lens of the New Testament, recognizing what Isaiah is doing is he's laying out for us what will be the nature of our Savior, what will be Jesus' ministry to us. And I just want to highlight too how this expresses his love. Number one, in his love, in his work on the cross, he bore our sorrows. He bore our sorrows. Again, look with me in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Surely he has borne our griefs. In fact, the passage before, verse 3, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now that language of, of grief... Uh, that language of, of, of a man of sorrows, uh, bearing our griefs, th- th- this, though the word itself can often literally be translated as, as sickness, uh, obviously that's, that's not, it's not relegated to that here. When it says he's borne our, our griefs, he is, a, he is a man who is, who is a man of sorrows. This is a way of saying that part of the ministry of Christ is in knowing that in him All that is true about the brokenness and the pain and the suffering of humanity has been upon him. He's he's borne them, he's carried them. And don't let that word acquainted distract you from things. Because we use the word acquainted and we use that word kind of to talk about like shallow relationships, right? Oh, well, he's he's an acquaintance. Yeah, she's an acquaintance. If I say that about somebody, that means I know your name, face, maybe we've had some interchange, but we don't really know each other well. That's, that's not the way this word's being used. It's not its force. This means Jesus was thoroughly involved in the realities of human suffering. Jesus understood the pain of death. He, he understood the grief that comes with, with, with sickness. He understood the grief that would come with rejection by men. He understood the grief that would come by betrayal. He understands what it's like to be abandoned. See, this is an amazing thing. And, I, and it's not that I'm trying to you know, do, do any kind of psychologizing here, but I think it's important that we, that we not... Ignore what is the nature of Christ's ministry for us, that, that we don't deal with it in too cold and clinical of a way. Because part of the beauty of the incarnation is that this, this was not God wrapping himself in divinity so that he would remain uninfluenced by the realities of this world. It's not like Jesus had some kind of supernatural force field that expelled all that which would create grief and pain in the heart and mind. When Jesus entered into our existence, he entered into it in all of its fullness with one exception. 
He himself never sinned. But he felt the fullness of sin in all of its forms, fundamentally. And of course, when he goes to the cross, as we'll mention here in just a moment, this is exactly what he's bearing in his body. But Isaiah gives us this profound truth that part of what's going on here is Jesus bearing our sorrows. The good news is, as we eat of the bread, as we drink of the cup this morning, we are, mind, we are going to be reminded that part of the work of Christ is in fact dealing, and con- dealing with and conquering the very things that bring us pain and suffering and grief. As you eat and as you drink, you can be, you can be certain that that which creates all of this, that can make life such a burden, that can make day-to-day so harsh, Jesus has already conquered it. Now, don't misunderstand this. I don't want to give you the impression that that means if you just do the right thing, then you'll be happy, happy all the time, and that you'll never have any pain or suffering. It's not the way this works. But I can promise you, without trying to sound trite, and I'm not trying to do that, or make less of whatever pain or suffering you might even be going through today as you walked in these doors, I can promise you, as Paul himself said, they are light and momentary when compared to the greater glory to come. Pain is not forever. Jesus bore it. He died on the cross. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine divinity becoming so thoroughly human that he would experience in all ways we are, our weaknesses and temptation, yet without sin, as the author of Hebrews tells us? It's an amazing expression of love. Number two, in his love, he bore our sin. This this is perhaps the most readily identifiable idea related to the crucifixion and as we take the elements together. And so... Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It's probably as well known a verse out of Isaiah, at least among a a lot of folks, as as there might be. It's it's at least in in the top five. This is readily recognizable to us, and we find New Testament authors relying on this language to describe Christ's crucifixion. Here's what I want to draw out, and it doesn't really requiring, require any kind of drawing necessarily. Did you notice the emphasis? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. I'm going to give you the theological phrase. You're familiar with it, perhaps. This, as well as any passage in the Bible, describes for us Christ's substitutionary atonement. It's a mouthful. You're going to have to spell it right to leave today, all right? I know it's a mouthful. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement, And it just means this. What Isaiah is reflecting on here is the fact that the Messiah 
will die in our place. This is, this is a substitute. I should bear God's wrath. I should pay the just penalty for my unrighteousness, for my transgressions, for my iniquities. I should die. The chastisement belongs to me. But Jesus, in his love and grace, bore in his body the consequences for my sin. What a profound expression of love. Not only did he, does he bear our sorrows and thir- thoroughly identify with the nature of human existence, but he also then becomes sin. He knew no sin, becoming that sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that now, through his chastisement, we enjoy peace, and through the stripes laid upon him, we are healed of sin. And, 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 and then Isaiah ending that in verse six, like we just read, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God was willing to pour out his wrath on his one and only son. As you eat the bread, as you drink the cup, do not let this truth easily slide by heart and mind. As you eat and as you drink, I think there should always be a part of us that eats and thinks that should be my body broken. And as we drink of that cup, that should be my blood shed. The result being, if it were my body broken and my blood shed, eternal separation from God. Again, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's made us righteous. He's given us this great exchange. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous transaction in, if you think about it in a certain way. It's a ridiculous one. What, what happens here? Jesus takes all my unrighteousness, every bit of my sin, and puts it on himself and, and bears then in his body God's wrath against sin and in exchange then I get the righteousness of Christ. It is, it is an amazing reality that we then remember here this morning. There is no other earthly display that rivals really that of the cross in terms of love. I mean, this, this crucifixion of Christ, it exemplifies unconditional love. This is a love given without strings attached. It is the love of a father to intervene and provide a cure for the curse of sin and death. It is the love of a savior who died, who died for sins he had not committed. It's a saving love, a healing love, a redeeming love, a sustaining love, and a forever love, and one that we can all too easily underappreciate, take lightly, take advantage of it, or at times even just spurn it when we chase after other lesser things. This is why it is so good that we regularly come back to the table. Because this forces us to come back into the realities of the gospel itself. We don't do this because we need to get saved again, but we do this because we have an ongoing need of the saving grace of Christ in our lives. We do this because we know that our sin is an offense to the Lord and sufficient price has been paid. And so we take of the bread and we drink of the cup to remember a Savior who did, who did this for us. And so as we prepare ourselves to take of these elements, 
first thing that I want to do, I'm going to give you a moment to pray. Just in silent prayer. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do in a big group because it's going to be silent as much as it can be. And I want you to spend time just in confession, surrender, preparing your own heart to take of these elements. Confessing sin, dedicating yourself to the to, to God and his gospel, committing to love him, heart, soul, and strength. And then we'll take the elements together. We'll take of the body and we'll take of the blood and we'll remember the work of our Savior. So I'll give you a moment, personal, private prayer, and I'll close us in just a moment.